Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Arjun here, welcome back to Leftover. Um, as uh, you probably do know by now already, uh, Nikita has uh, taken a step back from the podcast for, for the minute, but um, we do have a very exciting new uh, co-host lined up and uh, the announcement might have been made by the time uh, this episode is out already, probably will have, uh, but just in case uh, for anyone who's listening, I'm going to leave it a surprise if they <laughs> if they don't know quite yet. Uh, but yeah, we've got uh, uh, some some um, some great stuff lined up. But for this week, we have a, a really special guest um, and, uh, you know, someone that I've been wanting to do this, do this episode with for a time. But I'm really glad that we finally managed to make it happen. Pez, how are you doing? Thanks a lot for joining. No, man, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. The topic of discussion today, obviously, um, you know, which we were kind of, ever since you wrote that article about uh, Kwame Nkrumah, is Pan-African Socialism. Uh, I've been wanting to do this episode. I mean, that's sort of a little bit your area of study at the moment as well, isn't it? Yeah, no. So currently um, I'm doing my master's at Leeds. And uh, while Pan-African Socialism isn't exactly my uh, specialist topic, it does come up often, um, especially because I'm looking at my dissertation topic actually is on the surveillance of um, colonial black power movements in the Caribbean. So that sort of uh, black power element links in there with um, the pan-African socialism that came out of Africa in the 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. Yeah, amazing. And I think we'll definitely uh, get to that as well at some point about the sort of the broader global legacy of pan-Africanism as well, you know, uh, not just during you know, the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, but but today um, as well. And and um, you're also part of the Young Historians Project. Um, do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, no, um, the Young Historians Project, I joined, um, I want to say 2019. Um, I can't actually remember, that's pretty bad. <laughs> but, no, uh, but no, yeah, it's, it feels like a long time ago. But um, we're basically a non-profit um, of young young people of African and Caribbean heritage in Britain. And we're basically looking at getting kids and teenagers in, like ages 16 to 25 um, interested basically in history, um, particularly um, African and Caribbean history in Britain and also um, back in Africa and the Caribbean. So um, if I might actually uh, do a cheeky little plug here, we've got a um, our project is actually due to uh, be finished and it's on um, African women in the uh, British Health Service. And essentially, Amazing. we're producing a documentary, we're producing an ebook, um, we're producing a podcast, we've got it all going on. And um, essentially, if you want to, if you want to have a look, you can check us out at younghistoriansproject.org. And if you yourself are listening, and you are a young person of African or Caribbean heritage, um, you can apply to join us. Um, if you have a look at the same website, younghistoriansproject.org. So that's my little plug there. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, feel free to do that plug again, by the way, before we before we wrap up, because uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I will. That's, I will, yeah. That's, because no, that's that, that's really really cool work, and uh, absolutely, you know, highly recommended as well that everyone checks them out, um, especially given so many of the discussions that you know we've been having recently about um, about racism in this country and about the legacy of of the empire. And uh, the lack of reckoning that has happened, you know, in this country with with that legacy. Um, and, you know, I think that this question of history and, and the rewriting of history becomes really, really important. Right. And um, and I think especially in this regard, you know, when we look at some of the people that we're going to be talking about today, um, you know, and, and their legacies, especially, you know, looking at the sort of anti-imperialist and anti-racist movements of today, I think it's important to always kind of keep those questions in mind as well, right? You know, about like what, what lessons can we learn and, you know, what, what can we, what can we kind of take forward with us? Um, but yeah, like, like I mentioned earlier, obviously, um, you know, uh, when I reached out to you first, it was, uh, um, after you've written that article about Kwame, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, why don't you get us started? What can you tell us about Kwame Nkrumah? Well, essentially, Nkrumah, when he's uh, born in 1909, he's born in a tiny village, uh, a very poor village in the uh, southwest of Ghana called Nkrofu. And essentially, there's uh, when he's born, the story goes, there's no hospital. So he's, he's had to be born with the help of a local uh, midwife. And uh, initially... Yeah, um, initially, the story goes, he uh, he went by the name uh, Kofi, which is the name basically given to um, Ghanaian boys if you're born on a Friday, I want to say. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, Friday. I've heard about so, this, yeah. Yeah, so um, um, under the uh, Akan uh, sort of tr- naming tradition, to, and Akans are the most populous ethnic group in Ghana, um, right. basically you're, you're named on each day, basically, after each day that you're born. Yeah, so yeah. Um, Monday, if you're a boy, you're Kojo. Tuesday, right, you're Ebro, right, right. and there's so on and so on. But um, uh-huh. so initially, he uh, he's called Kofi because they thought he was born on uh, Friday. But then he finds out he's born on Saturday, and he changes his name to Kwame. So that's uh-huh. how he comes up with the name. Uh, <laughs> was so, it yeah, sort of like midnight kind of thing? Like what what side of midnight was he born? Was yeah, it exactly. It's, 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 it's one of those ones. So yeah, it's it's weird like that. But yeah, that's how he uh, he comes to get his name. He went to this really prestigious school uh, in, yeah, what was then obviously the Gold Coast um, under British rule, didn't he? And then he went back there to teach later before he entered politics. Right, yeah. But I mean, yeah, like it was it was really when he went to the States and then uh, then Britain. That's, I think, when he really became influenced by the writings of Marcus Garvey and C.L.R. James and W.B. Du Bois uh, and people like that, right? And um, he he helped organize the Fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, yeah. So in the States, yeah. essentially, he meets C.L.R. James, who is an absolute titan. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. Yeah. He meets C.L.R. James. And it's CLR James who sort of um, puts him on to uh, fraternizing with uh, the communists, to which the FBI yeah. and the MI5 um, start surveilling Nkrumah. And this is actually what I did part of my um, undergraduate dissertation on. Um, yeah. So the MI5 and FBI start surveilling him. And it's when he goes to uh, London where he starts to then get involved with the Communist Party. Um, he mm-hmm. uh, he works with George Padmore, who is another titan yeah. of Pan Africanism um, from yeah. Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, 
And it's with George Padmore that, like you said, um, they work together to organise the Fifth Pan-African Congress, which takes place in Manchester. And also important in the uh, Fifth Pan-African Congress is Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, who um, some of you might have heard of. It's actually quite interesting because um, I mentioned the Young Historians Project earlier. Our consultant historian for um, the Young Historians Project is a guy called Hakeem Adi. And he is, uh, I would like to say he is the leading historian on Pan-Africanism in Britain. Right. He wrote a book essentially in 2018 called Pan-Africanism, A History, which is where I'm going to be getting essentially all of this from. But the story sure. goes, <laughs> the, st- the story goes that um, it's Jomo Kenyatta who is able to use his personal connections essentially to um, find the venue for um, Manchester. And I think it's called Chawton Hall in Manchester. So yeah, he owns um, he owns several restaurants, and he's got um, he's also got uh, connections with the locals, and it's through Kenyatta that he's able right. to uh, <laughs> they're able to find the venue for the uh, Pan African Con- Congress. Wow! <laughs> yeah, and um, who were some of the people that attended? Because it was like a sort of a, a pretty all star list at that point, wasn't it? Honestly, it was. Uh, it's like the the Avengers or the Justice League of African liberation. Like everyone who was anyone was essentially there. Yeah. So you had people yeah. like Hastings Banda. You had people like obviously Nkrumah. George Padmore was there. W. B. Du Bois was there. Yeah. Uh, Kenyatta himself was there. Um, Amy Ashwood Garvey was there. The wife of Marcus Garvey. Um, right. It was just really um, one of the pivotal moments, essentially, of. Um, of Pan-African history, this fifth Pan-African Congress. And um, it's, it's quite a shame, actually, because it's, it's quite under-discussed in this country. And, and it's quite a big part of this country's history as well, obviously, exactly. taking place in, in Manchester. Mm-hmm. So um, when I did write that article back then, it was, um, it was partially also not just to draw attention to Nkrumah himself, who is, you know, at times, I believe, under-discussed but also yeah. the Pan-African Congress, which took place right here in this country. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah massive bit of history there. Yeah, because, I mean, like, like you mentioned as well, obviously it's the fifth one, and I think there's only been two since then, and one in the 70s and one in 2014. Considering, yeah, like the the, the, the people that were involved, like you said, and, and especially the, the, the moment in history, you know, like in 1945, just as the Second World War is ending, um, and, you know, as all the liberation movements the independence movements are really taking hold um it's it's a really pivotal moment and yeah like you said it's it's kind of criminal how under discussed it is um and um yeah so i mean i think kind of taking a lot of the the influence from a lot of the the, the, the politics of a lot of the people um in attendance when Nkrumah went back, uh, that's when he founded the United Gold Coast Convention, right? Um, and uh, that's kind of when he when he properly went into politics, when he went back to Ghana. Yeah, no, you're right. But just before we go into that, I just want to issue a correction to what I said earlier. I said it was uh, Jomo Kenyatta who um, sourced the venue. It was actually Ras Makinen, um from uh, Ethiopia. And some of you might right. know him as being the father of um, Emperor Haile Selassie. Who right, is, um, right, of course, yeah who is of uh, Rastafarian uh, fame. So, yeah, uh, yeah Rastafarian. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> but, yeah, what, what, what can you tell us about what, when, um, when Nkrumah went back to Ghana and entered politics? So, essentially, the um, British 
they trust the Ghanaians with what is called, I want to, I want to say it's called limited responsibility. So you can kind of see what they're trying to go for here. And the UGCC or the United Gold Coast Convention is essentially a group of Ghanaian elites. So the middle upper class Ghanaians, lawyers, um, sort of elder statesmen, you call them. And they are, um, I want to say they are the more conservative of the political entities in Ghana. And essentially Nkrumah is, um, is brought on by a group of um, people, including himself, um, who today in Ghana are almost like uh, folk heroes. They're, they're called um, the Big Six. Yeah. And essentially it's Nkrumah when he's in England, he is basically, he's doing a lot of activism and it's great. But the problem is, is that he's broke and he's got no money. And it's the UGCC who reach out to Nkrumah and they're like, look, we need someone who's actually skilled at organizing because they're all, mm-hmm. you know, middle class, not very in tune with um, yeah. the Ghanaian uh, peasants, essentially, and the Ghanaian yeah. workers. So they need someone, they needed someone like Nkrumah who was radical and dynamic and knew how to connect to the masses, essentially, to yeah. um, sustain their message of um, independence. And it's quite interesting because uh, they're in true conservative fashion. Their motto was, um, independence in the shortest time possible, which, um, I mean, it's not very catchy, but uh, that's, uh, that's what they were going for. And so then what, what was it really that, that instigated him to split off and found the CPP himself? So essentially Nkrumah, and I will say this of him just in general, is that his defining characteristic is that he's impatient. And I, t- I said earlier, the uh, UGCC, their, their uh, motto was... Um, independence in the shortest time possible yeah. and Nkrumah says no we do not want this and he splits off and he forms a CPP and the motto is self-government now essentially yeah. he says right now we want independence yeah. none of this incremental bullshit we want it now and it's this <laughs> impatience and also the fact that Nkrumah himself is is getting a growing popularity because of his you know his passion and his um and it's it's this impatience that this uh, the the Ghanaians really feel, and they they're saying, look, this is the guy. He's saying right now we're going to cast out the British and take control of our own lives. And I think that's that's where the split comes. I mean, there's also the um, the class split in that Nkrumah, he was sort of out of place in the UGCC, which was you know all these rich, well-off um, Ghanaian elites, and he came from a very humble beginnings, um, yeah. of course, as a yeah. as a poor Ghanaian in the in the south. So uh, there's that dynamic going on there. You know, as they started agitating for self rule, they, that led to strikes, which led to violence, and then Nkrumah was imprisoned. And when he was released from prison, I mean, I, I saw some of the the footage of, yeah, like the the processions on the streets. I mean, like it was a hero's welcome when he when he was let out of prison, right? I mean, he was immensely popular at the time. And I think it, his imprisonment had a lot to do with that. I mean, um, it almost martyred him and his, um, yeah. and also his colleagues that were um, in prison with him. It gave them, I mean, I, uh, this is a bit of an anecdote, but I spoke to um, activist Roy Saw. Um, yeah. Well, the, the YHP spoke to them, spoke to him a while ago. And essentially he yeah. said when he went to prison that, um, prison for a lot of people is like work experience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like every, every serious, every serious revolution or every serious freedom fighter has had to go to prison at some point. So it's that, it's that sort of legitimation by um, going to prison 
that really sort of boosts his profile because before Nkrumah was a political outsider. Um, he was definitely uh, the junior member of the UGCC. And yeah. it's this imprisonment um, that really sort of boosts his profile and sort of um, martyrs him, like I said, and gives him that extra popularity. Yeah. And so um, after he comes out of prison, obviously there's the national legislative uh, election and the CPP wins a landslide of uh, 34 out of 38 seats. And Nkrumah becomes recognised even by the, the governor, um, what what was his name again? Arden something. Charles um, Arden Clark. That was his name. Charles Arden Clark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, recognizes him as the prime minister as well, um, and oversees this like massive development project in Ghana over the next five years. Right. I mean, like building schools, building infrastructure, building roads, um, and then basically wins the same majority again five years later. Basically, the British realize that, you know, there's only so much we can do to stave off uh, this guy, Nkrumah, because he is massively popular and he is constantly calling for self-government now, essentially. He says, you guys better go, otherwise, you know, you've seen what the French have had to deal with. You've seen what the Belgians uh, are going to be be dealing with. They see that if you do not give the Ghanaian self-government, you're going to cause yourself a lot of headaches. So the easier outcome was to just give them independence, which we'll go on to later, which ends up being mostly nominal independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, that's that's a year later, a year after he gets re-elected in 1957. Nominal independence, do you want to elaborate on that a bit? I mean, yeah, so Nkrumah himself understands that mm-hmm. um, when Ghana is given independence, that this independence is great, you know, we've got our own flag, we can print our own currency, but ultimately our policy, economic and political, is directed from outside. And it's this sort of phenomenon mm-hmm. that he comes to call neo-colonialism. Exactly. And it's neo-colonialism that ends up being made into a book, Neo-Colonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, which is yep. obviously named after Lenin's um, imperialism, the yep. last stage, or the highest stage, cap- last stage of capitalism. Of, of, of capitalism, yeah. <laughs> he um, clearly defines neo-colonialism in the introduction and it's really simple. It's a great book. I highly advise everyone read it. And he defines neocolonialism as essentially the state that is subject to neocolonialism is in theory independent and they have all the outward trappings of international sovereignty. But in reality, its economic system and its political policy is directed from the outside. And that, in its essence, is neocolonialism. You have independence, but not really. Yeah. And um, I mean, this phenomenon is is probably more apparent in the African nations than than anywhere else, really, um, post-independence. But I mean, it is a pretty sort of global phenomenon, um, obviously, in terms of like the actions of multinational corporations all around the world. Um, and just generally, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and it's, uh, you know, punitive loans, you know, which come with these ridiculous um, conditions for what structural adjustment plans, what they call, which completely wreak havoc on, you know, the the local people in a lot of these countries in order to, you know, uh, increase the profits of multinational corporations once again in, in, in the developed world. Um, and yeah, so this is, I mean, what he said 
I mean, when did he write the book? In the 50s, right? Um, uh, the, uh, neocolonialism itself is published in 1965. It's a concept that he was working on before. Yeah, I mean, those lessons still hold very true to this day. I mean, if not even truer in some ways, um, like the, 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 the kind of things that he, was, that, that he was warning of. And after Ghana's independence in 1957, like you said, um, he managed to stay in power for close to a decade, which is more than most... Socialist leaning. Yeah, I know. I, I, I would say, as as leaders yeah. go, as left wing leaders go, especially he had left a wing leaders, decent run. yeah, exactly. Right, right, wing, right wing leaders in Africa generally they can go on for two or three decades. Oh yeah, That's you can get a few normal. decades if you if you let the World Bank and the IMF in, they will give you happily two decades or so of you know personal rule. But if you're left wing, I'd say decade max maybe. But um, yeah. I mean, if we look at Africa between 1956 and 2001, there were about 80 coups and there were about 108 failed coups. So, like, it's a place of massive instability. And if you are left wing, that's almost doubled. Actually, before we go go too far ahead of ourselves, I think it's important to talk about uh, the fact that um, Nkrumah obviously was part of the founding of the OAU. Uh, in 1963. And and that's obviously uh, an extension of his vision of pan-Africanism, right? I mean, the idea that you need a sort of um, intergovernmental organization to actually work both as like a peace broker, but also, you know, in terms of setting up yeah, better diplomatic ties and um, and 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 economic arrangements, and yeah, I mean that's the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, is now obviously what's the the AU, uh, the African Union. Yeah, no. So the OAU is obviously um, set up uh, in the sixties, I think, and it's this organization that essentially is trying to be the embodiment of um, Pan-Africanism. And um, Hakeem actually talks about this in his book. I'm going to plug that book again. Um, I highly advise that anyone interested in a history of Pan-African, Pan-Africanism, please go read Hakeem's book, Pan-Africanism, A History. Um, we'll uh, we'll plug it as well in the, um, in the, when we put the episode out. Nice. Um, but yeah. yeah, essentially, the OAU is, um, it starts with the idea of ending all forms of colonial exploitation. That's its main goal. So essentially, the main focus of its like direction is apartheid South Africa. Um, they're looking at South Africa and they're saying, right, we need to pull together essentially to try and oppose this white supremacist fascist regime. And the issue is with the OAU is that, I'm not going to lie, it just was not very effective. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, now, this is not to say that the OAU did not do good things. They did a lot of good. They, they actually managed to um, end up arming some um, anti-apartheid fighters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they had solidarity motions, all sorts. But um, initially, I think it was just clouded by disagreements, um, differing personalities um, in the um, out of the African leaders who were attending. And just the fact that um, Nkrumah himself um, was actually prone to stirring stirring the pot a little bit because he would (laughs) often criticize the um, especially Francophone um, speaking African rulers of being puppets Mm. of French neocolonialism. And it mm-hmm. was Nkrumah's um, sort of um, his propensity to not be willing to work with these um, these leaders 
that ended up causing a lot of these uh, frictions. And obviously, um, the OAU becomes the AU. And the principal mover of this is um, the pantomime villain of the West, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Um, and he is... Um, <laughs> He is the sort of prime organiser of establishing yeah. the AU. And um, not to get too much into it, but essentially he says after apartheid is um, kicked out in uh, 94, I think it is, um, yeah. the OAU has essentially outlived its usefulness because Africa is mostly, mostly decolonised and the big bad of African colonisation, South Africa, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. has been uh, defeated by the forces mm-hmm. of uh, Nelson Mandela and his friends. So Gaddafi essentially is very keen to start a new organization, very similar to the EU. And he, he actually calls for um, a African central bank. He calls for um, a united African military. And principally, he, um, he starts drawing up plans for a shared African currency, the gold dinar. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it's primarily this this currency issue, which was um, initially founded to mount a challenge to the, obviously the US dollar. And it was this that he wanted to use to take away the oil revenues out of the dollar and put them back into Africa. And a lot of people cite this as one of the reasons why um, obviously NATO had to uh, intervene. Had to get rid. Get rid of, yeah, had to get rid of uh, Gaddafi in 2011. <laughs> but we're, we, we weren't going that, into that too much, but I do want to say no, that no, no. If you I think wanna... it's really important. I think if we're talking about Pan-Africanism, you can't not mention Gaddafi uh, because, I, I, yeah, like I you said, you know, say... like he's, yeah, like he's he's instrumental, especially in the more sort of recent uh, recent era, um, in uh, like as as like one of the last sort of key figureheads of that, at least as a head of state. And yeah, like once again, we saw what happened to him. You know, um, even though you know at various stages he shared a very cozy relationship with many of the you know. Western heads of state as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, um, ultimately, yeah, I think that's that's the thing, especially the idea of uh, shifting the, you know, the, the power of the petrodollar away from Africa is uh, was proved to be possibly too much of a threat. But yeah, um, speaking of, you know, um, like you're saying, uh, I mean, Nkrumah, while he's um, away on a state visit to China, there's a coup. And and his government is overthrown. Yeah. So essentially, um, in uh, in sixty uh, six, it is um, he is on a visit. As he his the actual aim of his visit is that he's going to. He was invited by Ho Chi Minh uh, to visit um, Hanoi, and he's stopping over in uh, Peking, which is today um, Beijing. And um, he is getting off the plane, and the Chinese officials that are with him. They wait essentially until he's in private to inform him that he's been cooed and uh, the government has been overthrown. And in Krumah, he actually writes about this um, in exile in, um, I want to say, uh, where is he in exile? Tanzania? Um, he writes about this in exile and it's all in his book, um, Dark Days in Ghana. He was, he, he was in ex- exile in, in Guinea. Um... In Guinea, that's it, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's with uh, Sekitore in, uh, in Guinea. Exactly, yeah. That's yeah. it. And he writes about this in his book, um, Dark Days in Ghana, which was published in uh, 1969. And essentially, he is he recalls himself just being in utter disbelief that, you know, he's been cooped while they're away. And the coup plotters are all um, part of the military and the police, which um, I think I spoke about a while ago um, on Twitter. And I noted the fact that... Um, 
in keeping in tradition with the whole idea of neo-colonialism, when Nkrumah comes to power, he inherits a bureaucracy and a military that is essentially that is essentially a proxy for the British. He inherits an officer class that was largely trained at the Royal Academy in Sandhurst, and he also inherits a civil service that was largely trained by British functionaries and have middle-class British sympathies. So it's this sort of, um, this, these sort of interests together with the tribal chiefs that he is also annoyed through his policies that um, lead to groups forming against him um, um, to ultimately depose him of power in 1966. Yeah, and I mean, also he'd by then... Um had multiple assassination attempts against him. And so, you know, uh, he'd also uh, declared a one-party state. He declared himself president for life. He declared a few pretty authoritarian laws, like, you know, preventive arrest and, and jailing and stuff for political opponents. So, um, but at the same time, I mean, it was it was quite obvious that, like, um, you know, once, because, I mean, once Nkrumah's government fell, I mean, over the, between that and, like, when Jerry Rawlings, how many coups happened in that time? <laughs> between 1966 and 1980? I mean, something like, a, a ridiculous number. I mean, there was just, like, every couple of years, there was, like, a coup or another, <laughs> or yeah, a change no, of government, wasn't after, there? After Nkrumah, Ghana was sort of famously um, unstable. Yeah. And it's only actually recently that there's been a string of um, sort of uninterrupted um, uh, democratic uh, transitions of power, which have been uh, quite celebrated um, in Ghana. But no, um, to, um, to go back to Nkrumah's um, author- authoritarianism, I think we obviously we understand that his policies were definitely bad. His Preventative mm. Detention Act was one of mm. the most unpopular um, policies he'd ever put Put in, uh, put into uh, into place, and it's actually um, the story goes that his um, one of his old UGCC um, sort of mentors, or the guy who mm. actually um, hired him to join the UGCC, a guy called Dankwa, um, mm-hmm. one of the big six. He is one of the people that that is imprisoned underneath this um, this preventative detention act. So it it definitely made it made him no friends. Um, and if anything, it just contributed to um, his growing opposition and the yeah. um, the sponsor of opposition groups in uh, in Ghana. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, but yeah, like 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 you said as well. You know, uh, you know, after he was deposed, I mean, uh, with a coup that was allegedly backed by the Western powers, um, or. I mean, what's 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 the evidence of of Western involvement in the in the coup in nineteen sixty six? Okay, so in terms of Western involvement, we know for a fact that by I want to say nineteen sixty four at least, uh, Nkrumah is definitely in the crosshairs of the West, and there's multiple reasons for this. For one, his government absolutely loved white elephant uh, building projects that were essentially designed to funnel money into their um, their own accounts, essentially. And his, his government was rife with corruption. It was one of the famously corrupt um, governments towards the end of his, uh, towards the end of his rule. And he had amassed, he had amassed a mountain of debt, essentially, um, to the US, the World Bank, um, the IMF. And second is that 
Nkrumah was not very popular in Africa, and one of the reasons for this is because he had a habit of um, sponsoring um, subversive groups in neighboring countries, and essentially um, this... <laughs> I remember reading about this. <laughs> and like, he, he's, he's sent aid and like money to conflicts which like really didn't pay off well at all <laughs> in 63 um there are Ghanaian agents that are implicated in an assassination attempt on the president of togo who's a guy called Sylvanas <laughs> olympio and that event it causes almost um african leaders to almost cut ties with ghana and as well as this a dissident that's trained in ghana failed an assassination attempt on the president of niger a guy called um, Hamani <laughs> Diori. So yeah. Nkrumah has got his hands in various different pies <laughs> and his rationale essentially is that these people that I'm trying to assassinate are puppets of neocolonialism and we need to get them out of the way because they're not going to negotiate with him. Whether you think that strategy was right or wrong, yeah. personally, I, I, think that strategy, I think that strategy did him more harm than good. But that was his rationale for it. His yeah, rationale yeah. was, these guys are not going to play ball. We've got to get them out of the way and put our own guys in. This lack of a collegiate um, sort of attitude that kind of um, didn't really earn in Krumah any friends um, in Africa. But in terms of his actual downfall and the CIA um, attachments to it, the only sort of thing linking the CIA or any sort of US involvement to it is just the fact that they were over the moon when he was um, when he was deposed in a coup, yeah, and essentially yeah. Um, we have um, you can actually find this online, and it was a um, it was a letter from President Lyndon Johnson's assistant, and he says that I'm quoting him now, and he says the coup in Ghana is a fortuitous windfall. President Nkrumah <laughs> was doing more to undermine our interests than any other Black African. And then uh, he also says, he also says that the subsequent military government is almost pathetically pro-Western. So that's how he describes the guys that take over in uh, in '66 after they get rid of Pathetically pro-Western. That's so uh, there you go. Hashtag PPW. I think that should be a good <laughs> uh, good tag for people to identify themselves on Twitter. To be honest, I think some people should. I mean, if they don't kind of come across that already. Uh, but, yeah I mean um, that's the thing right I mean you can often judge a person by the enemies that they make and I mean yeah regardless of his uh, authoritarian tendencies um, uh, you know and yeah some of the dodgy shit that he did and yeah he did some pretty dodgy shit uh, but like at the end of the day I mean um, when you've, when you've pissed the US off, you've probably done something right, especially in the height of the Cold War. Even though, like, he did the sort of Nehruvian thing of, like, you know, pledging non-legions uh, to either bloc during the, during the Cold War, but then being obviously still very much under the influence of the Soviets. I mean, know? yeah, and like, this... Which is... he... <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And it's this... Yeah. Um, he pledges non-alignment, but yeah. this is... this. His visual non-alignment. Sort of, that's um, what I meant. Sorry, non-allegiance, non-alignment. That's yeah. the word I was looking so for. So he's committed sorry. to non-alignment, <laughs> but then he yeah. visits um, China and he visits um, yeah. Zhu Enlai, and he is given a gift of a Zhongzhang suit, or popularly known as a, a Mao suit. And um, afterwards, he sort of ditches his uh, Western 
uh, suit and tie, and he's uh, he's only ever sort of seen wearing this uh, Zhongzhang suit, and that kind of visually sort of represents his um, shift towards um, <laughs> the communist world, essentially. Um, so while he might have uh, pledged non-allegiance, he was definitely, um, definitely, definitely more um, leaning towards the uh, Eastern Bloc than the West. Yeah, which is quite similar to someone like Nehru, I think, uh, you know, who is the, the first prime minister of India. Um, but um, yes, I mean, I mean, he lived in Guinea in exile until his death uh, in 1972. Uh, and that the official reason is, is cancer. But again, there are... There are people who believe that he might have been poisoned. <laughs> are we? Are we? Are we? Uh, uh, are, are we of that school? Uh, do Do we believe that Kwame, Kwame Nkrumah was poisoned? I think by the time he was in Guinea, um, if I'm being realistic, there was no real need to poison him. Um, yeah. He was um, he was largely yeah. reduced to sort of writing um, and doing a few radio broadcasts and um, yeah. just sort of trying to get his Pan African vision out there. But it yeah. was quite clear that his uh, grip on power was very much gone. His supporters were um, absolutely routed. Um, and I don't think that he was enough of a threat to be poisoned. But hey, it's this, it, when we're dealing with, you know, Western exactly. intelligence, who knows? You, <laughs> you know never what I mean? know. You I mean, never know. <laughs> um, it, com- it comes back to the whole idea of his authoritarian... Uh, it comes back to the idea of his authoritarian street. And I think we kind of have to understand this within the lens of Nkrumah being someone who was essentially under surveillance for a great portion of his adult life. So from yeah, the, the time MI5 he is had in... like files on him for ages, long before he exactly. became prime minister. Exactly. So during his time as a student in, in England, the MI5 is collecting files on him. When he's in America, the FBI is spying on him. I mean, there's a case in um, when he was in um, England, actually, and um, he is—he um, set up an organization. This was shortly after the Pan-African um, Congress, and he sets up this organization called the um, West African National Secretariat. And um, also, I'm going to do a little plug here. Um, Marika Sherwood, who is a very great historian, wrote a, a good book on Kwame Nkrumah's surveillance um, by the Western and British, uh, well, the uh, U.S. and British powers. And it's called Kwame Nkrumah and the Dawn of the Cold War, essentially. And there's a story in that that goes like he was um, returning to the West African National Secretariat building and yeah. it had been ransacked by the, um, by the police. Um, and the police station was literally opposite from their offices. So um, he and um, I think his name is Joe Apaya, who wrote the um, biography that it comes from. Right. They goes to the police station and they um, they ask the sergeant, you know, what's going on? And then uh, the sergeant's response is, well, that's a bit curious, isn't it? And then uh, <laughs> that's that that's that's it. So um, I mean, we have to understand. We have yeah. to understand that Nkrumah is someone that has been surveilled for a good portion yeah. of his adult life. Yeah, he has also had several assassination <laughs> attempts on his life. Yeah, um, one of them was that was by a police officer actually. Um, at his house right. in um, called Flagstaff House, it should be it should be renamed Flagstaff Fortress because it was <laughs> it was essentially uh, an armed fort where Nkrumah um, retreated um, after several attempts in his life. But this is a guy who is massively paranoid and with good reason to be so. I mean, mm. he saw what happened to Lumumba 
in Congo. Yeah, so yeah. it's it these 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 things are not some sort of abstract fear. It's it's very real, and I think it's quite difficult for people, um, especially us who live you know quite comfortable lives over here. It's quite difficult to understand the very real threat. I mean, it's similar to the kind of um, arguments that people put um, put across when it comes to um, Cuba, especially yeah. with the the latest um, the latest. Um, I, I, I say it in a round of un- protests, uh, protests unrest, in, yeah. in massive, in massive uh, <laughs> scare quotes. Uh... Yeah, exactly. But you know, they they of course they're going to crack down on it because they are facing a very real material threat from. In the Cuba example, one of the or the largest empire in in modern history. So these things are when we talk which about which is right at their doorstep. Which is the most exactly. insane thing about Cuba, which is like literally like they're this tiny island, which is like right, right. next to the empire. <laughs> they right, somehow exactly. managed right. to like I, keep it together, you know, for, for more than yeah, half a century. They, they yeah. managed to hold it together. Uh, so that's uh, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> but, um, speaking of, uh, like you were saying, you know, um, the Pat- Patrice Lumumba, uh, I mean, that's it, you know, like, um, this is a guy who he took influence and, and, and inspiration from Nkrumah as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, his downfall is pretty, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty well documented and pretty sort of, um, you know, uh, widely talked about, I guess, but, uh. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely brutal, sort of, sort of what happened. So yeah, no, essentially, Lumumba, when he's uh, captured by uh, Belgian gendarmes and um, also um, the separatists that he's fighting, he and a couple of his uh, colleagues, the way they uh, decide to execute them is uh, they line them up on a tree and they uh, shoot them one by one, and then they bury the bodies. But it's decided that you know we don't want to. We don't want to like have a site of uh, of burial that people can use to sort of pilgrimage towards. It's a bit similar to what they did to uh, Bin Laden, in that they uh, they buried Bin Laden at sea. But with um, with Lumumba, what the uh, Belgians decided to do is uh, to dissolve his body in acid, and um, they obviously uh, exhumed his body. Uh, they cut it up and they dissolved it in acid. And the uh, the only remains was a uh, the only remains from it, the body was a tooth, I think, that was um, that was uh, exchanged in a ceremonial um, sort of uh, reconciliation attempt, almost. But you know, it's uh, there's only so much you can do when there's uh, that much left of him. Well, that's it, and it's yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely. I mean, brutal to even talk about, really. I mean, um, and uh, yeah, like you were saying, I mean. As soon as Congo had gained independence in 1960, the Western powers immediately backed the secessionist movement in Katanga, right? And uh, so, I mean, immediately he had this war on his hands. And then Belgium comes in under the pretext of, like, support, like, helping Belgian nationals who are still there, but obviously just helping the secessionists, helping the rebels against Lumumba because Lumumba is seen as a threat. And then Lumumba asks for, 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 for aid for the UN. And then the UN doesn't say anything. Asks for aid for Russia. And that's when they all shit their pants and just like, <laughs> just make sure exactly. that he has to exactly. go straight away. Um, the main thing, I think, um, when we talk about the Congo, or Congo rather, is that we need to understand why is it that Lumumba was only allowed a few months in power? Why did they have to strangle him in his crib, essentially, before he could get off the ground? And the reason for this, essentially, is what it always is, and its resources. Congo is one of the most materially rich 
countries in the world. They have untapped reserves estimated to be about $24 trillion. And yet, at the same time, Congo is one of the poorest countries in the world. So this is what Michael Parenti says when he says that Africa is not poor. Africa is rich, only its people are poor. Yeah. And it's this whole idea that feeds into, into the idea that unless you have control of your national resources, which is yeah. what Lumumba was going for, you yeah. will not have any sort of political sovereignty. So mm -hmm. Congo has copper, it has diamond, it has tin, gold, it has extremely fertile so soil. And today it's the leading producer of the world's cobalt. I think it has about 70% of the world's cobalt. And also, importantly, correct me if I'm wrong, but the um, uranium that was used for the bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were also mined from Congo. Exactly, exactly. So two thirds, I want to say, of the uranium that was used for um, Little Boy, which was the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, came from a single mine, one mine in Congo called, I want to say it's called Shinkobolue. I think it's called that. I've probably butchered it, but that's, that's the name of the mine. And essentially, um, a journalist called Tom Zoelna, he visited the mine and essentially observed that there was no other mine in the world that you could see a purer concentration of uranium. And it's the Americans that have a pretty massive stake in the, um, the resources of, of Congo. And it's also the Americans that benefit then from the exploitation of sending those poor Congolese miners down the mines unprotected to be uh, to go and mine for uranium down in Shunkobolowe. So it's you can see the the supply chains there that are that lead to these conflicts that eventually mean that we cannot even allow Lumumba, who potentially has um, links to the Soviet Union, because whenever we're talking about this stuff, we have to contextualize it within the Cold War. Um, there is no escaping the fact that Africa was essentially caught in the middle of the struggle between hegemony for, for, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And the US policymakers look at Lumumba and they say, this is a guy who, if he gets into power, the resources, the rich mineral resources of Congo could potentially be stripped from us and given to the Soviets. And so that's why the Belgians have to back the, the secessionists in Congo and they have to get rid of Lumumba. And in an interesting turn of fate, actually, it's the, um, they end up turning on the, se the secessionists when Mobutu comes into power and they, um, they crush them and they crush all resistance to Mobutu, who is very favorable to the West. And like we were saying earlier, if you're favorable to the West, you can get a you good few decades. You can do whatever decades. the fuck yeah. you want. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. And Mobutu kind of embodies this in that, From 1965 you know, he... to like 1997, I think he was, exactly. uh, he was in power. Right. And, uh, he has just carried out just horrendous human rights abuses, torture, killings, um, but always stayed in favor of the West because, exactly. you know, he, they're, was, they're he, was, the he was allowing the multinationals in. Yeah. He was allowing exactly. the multinationals in. He was allowing the world bank in and there you go. Um, and uh, and and so yeah, that that's the thing. I think like Lumumba's uh, murder was. Uh, I think one of the reasons why it is slightly mythologized as well is because, yeah, it, it really did serve as like um, a real precedent for like what was to come 
over the coming decades, um, you know, that like leader after leader, you know, revolutionary um, socialist communist leaders in, in Africa um, being deposed and in many cases murdered um, by coups, which are backed by the West. And basically, you know, during that time, like you're saying, a lot of it in the context of, this, uh, of, the, of the Cold War and, and um, you know, uh, of their fear of Soviet influence in the African continent, uh, but also just generally to themselves just keep control of um, the resources, which, which were in a lot of these countries, especially in somewhere like Congo, for example. And, um, you know, like, like you were saying, you know, you know, Ghana was the first African country to gain independence, um, Congo fairly soon after that. And a couple of decades later, you know, when we, when we come to, uh, what was then the nation of, uh, well, the, the, the Republic of Upper Volta, where Thomas Sankara takes power after a coup in 1983 and renames the country Burkina Faso. That's the thing, you know, like you were mentioning before we started recording, like how many of these same, the, these same kind of tropes almost, you know, seem to kind of repeat themselves, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, like Sankara is someone I think, you know, especially in more recent years, I think is someone who's been quite, um, he's definitely a bit of a hero figure, especially among a lot of the, the online left, I would say. Uh, and I think there's there's a lot of good reason for that because the guy was pretty pretty remarkable in a lot of different ways. While I w- Sankara was undeniably you know a great leader, um, I think it's a similar case with someone like Lumumba in that um, leaders are often deified when they are when their leadership term is cut short. Yeah. So. Um, when someone gets assassinated, we don't get to see the full spectrum of their uh, leadership, and often it's yeah. um, it leads to a sort of romanticization of of them, especially by um, Western leftists. But I yeah. I do I do actually want to say that Sankara was one of the most inspiring uh, revolutionary yeah. African leaders, and who's to know what he could have done if uh, the coup was uh, did not occur, but. Because, yeah. I mean, he was killed at, what, the age of 36, 37, something like exactly. that. I mean, he was um, very young. He was very young and he came into power in his early 30s. Um, and, yeah, just like this in, this incredibly charismatic speaker. Um, but, yeah, just like a guy that really, really led by example. Like every single thing that um, he was kind of... Like the first thing he does when he comes into power is just slash the salaries of all government officials. And abolish privileges, you know, <laughs> like um, s- s- sells the entire government fleet of Mercedes cars, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's he was known for his almost sort of like I, I can't call it grandiose, but just sort of showy displays of humility and yeah. leading by example. For example, like you said, yeah. he replaces the government fleet of uh, Mercedes, and he replaces yeah. them with he replaces them with Renault Renault fives. Which yeah. are like the cheapest yeah. car going <laughs> yeah. in uh, Burkina Faso. Yeah. He he discourages people from chanting his name. He bans the hanging of um, presidential portraits, which was the, the done the done thing in Africa. If if you were the president, yeah. you'd have your portrait everywhere. He often would just turn up to public events unannounced, just wearing his trackies, just sort of like in the background in the crowd, and people wouldn't notice until like someone would point him out guitar. and go, uh, "Like how, how, how yeah, many he, how many." <laughs> exactly. He he played guitar. He he const- he emphasized playing sport. 
he yeah. played footy. He he cycled a lot, which was um, yeah, which was something quite big. He would often cycle to work, um, and even uh, just when he died, he was uh, his only possessions were, I believe, his laptop. Not his laptop. What am I talking about? His um, his bike, some of his guitars. His bike, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so and, and, and and a bust up old car, like pretty much. Yeah. So and I think there's a there's a story of when they go to visit the um, UN delegation and they're staying in yeah. the in the hotels. He orders all of his sort of entourage to lie on mattresses on the floor, essentially, yeah. um, saying that it's going to remind them of their days in uni or whatever. Yeah. So it's, he he yeah. he led by example. Absolutely, and that's kind of one of the reasons why he is he's very uh, inspiring in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, because I mean, he, it's not even just that he led by example in these matters of, um, you know, private life or whatever. But yeah, I mean, in terms of delivering, I mean, like Burkina Faso was uh, one of the poorest countries in all of Africa at the time when he came into power. And within three years, he'd made Burkina Faso food sufficient, food self-sufficient, which is a remarkable feat in itself, especially in a country which is like uh, experiencing huge desertification. So um, yeah, to, to combat desertification, he, he, you know, implements this massive tree planting program. You know, memories of the 2019 general election when, you know, Labour promised to plant, what, what was it, like 1 billion trees by 2035 or something like that? And everyone just like had this meltdown trying to figure out, but how? Like, and it's like, it's really not that much. Like when you break it down <laughs> yeah. by like the number of years and the the kind of like infrastructure that's actually available it's really not that much and like if Burkina Faso could like like plant like 10 million trees in like a week or something like that like literally like um just 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 insane numbers um I think like vaccinated 2.5 million people against measles meningitis and yellow fever in, in a week you know like you've got my, my man Matt Hancock over here just like a fucking clown <laughs> going around you know like like you're saying like doing extracurriculars I love that love that phrase by the way <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, no. and, and Thomas Ankara is actually like in one of the poorest countries in the world just vaccinating him two and a half million people in a week it's just I mean yeah when we talk about the sort of global south and global north and how the global south are quite literally experiencing the effects of climate change for example um, I think you can sort of see this in uh, Burkina Faso with, um, you, you spoke about desertification earlier, and they were quite literally on the, on the doorstep of the Sahara Desert. And in, uh, in March 1985, I believe, the sands of the Sahara blow in through Burkina Faso and it covers everything in a sort of grit-like film. So mm. everything was covered in sand and that sand was in the air, it was getting yeah. into people's lungs. And it was yeah. quite clear, materially sort of in front of you, that we need to do something about yeah. this issue. And I think that's the, that's the issue that a lot of people in this country and in the global north don't realise, is that people who are experiencing the effects of climate catastrophe, climate change, what have you, do actually have the policies and the ideas of how to combat it and have exactly. been doing it. But it's because exactly. we don't until it until it materially affects us. Like recently, with the flooding going on, it is very difficult for people in this country to sort of envisage or even gain the collective will to actually put their foot down and demand these changes. This is it. 
And what's mad about the flooding thing as well that I was thinking of just the other day is like, when you actually think about it, there's been quite a few pretty major floods in the UK just in the last few years. When like, you know, it's not like right now, I think people are talking about it a bit more because it's in London. Um, but there have been parts of the country which have been like, which have had pretty serious flooding um, you know, for the past few years. And that's it. You know, it's it's been happening already and people seem to forget. <laughs> and and this country has absolutely no fucking flood defences whatsoever. I know we're maybe getting sidetracked a little bit here, but like that's, you know, it's, um, you know, but when, when we're talking about somewhere like Burkina Faso and, and uh, the kind of things that Sankara managed to do in such a short amount of time, um, it's, you know, he built, built, built the, the, the country's first railroad without any foreign investment, for example, literally just got everyone in the country involved uh, to, to build it, which is like in itself, like a pretty remarkable thing to do. It kind of shows you about also like the potential of uh, human creativity, especially, or, or resourcefulness rather, you know, in, in especially in the in the face of impoverishment and in the face of, of, of uh, what, what's a scarcity, that's the word, the opposite of, uh, of abundance, scarcity, you know, like, um, yeah, that the, the people still can, you know, come up with like ultimately pretty innovative ways to kind of deal with these kinds of problems if you have the right political will to do it, uh, which is what makes, you know, like some of the decisions by this country even more absurd when you consider the kind of resources that it has access to, you know, because then then it becomes the, this question of like the fact that it's it's about the political will to do something and not about how, how much resources there are, um, you know, um, that, that, that becomes even clearer, really. But yeah, I mean, exactly. with, with some, uh, with someone like Sankara, but I mean, it, it, it wasn't just, I mean, the things that we mentioned before. I mean, he was, you know, one of the first, um, leaders really, uh, very vocally, uh, promoting women's rights, uh, you know, appointing women in senior government positions, uh, in the military, um, during Women's Day, making men go to the market and do the shopping, which I think is just great. <laughs> so Sankara, he is massively ahead of his time when it comes to um, the place of the Burkinabe women. And essentially, you mentioned Women's Day, and he, he makes a speech where he sort of chastises the men for what he calls their feudal sort of backwards um, uh, social relationships with women. And, you know, he's one of the people that doesn't just sort of say these things, but backs it up with policy. So he, he bans female genital mutilation. He bans forced marriages, polygamy. And I know that these things are sort of seen as a given in these countries, but with in a country like Burkina Faso, where these sort of, sort of things are enshrined in the sort of uh, tribal um, tradition, um, it was a very, very, very progressive step for um, Sankara and his government to take. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because they made it law that these things, you know, immediately went away. Of course not. But they were steps, steps of in the course. right direction, in a, in a pro truly progressive uh, direction. And there were genuine places for women in um, Burkina Bay society, which is one of the main criticisms of uh, post-colonial Africa. It's often criticized for being a heavily masculinized um, um, sort of environment with emphasis on strong, uh, charismatic in uh, square in scare quotes, uh, yeah. male leaders. And it's yeah. um, Burkina Faso and uh, Sankara who places a real emphasis on um, the the real ability of women to contribute to the revolution. Yeah, exactly. And um, and and yeah, once again, all of these kind of revolutionary moves that he's making 
is, you know, putting him very much on the radar of the French, uh, the former colonial masters, um, and and also Ivory Coast right next door, um, who's uh, President Boigny had a, he was basically a puppet of the French. Um, and I mean, this eventually leads to his downfall in, in, in 1986 when his, when they managed to convince his closest, com- uh, his number two in charge, Blaise Compaoré, to betray him, uh, and storm the, the parliament and, uh, and open fire. And even though like the, the coup had been coming and he'd been warned of it for, for a long time, I mean, he almost seemed determined to go out a martyr. He, he, he refused to arrest Compaoré, even though like all of his closest associates were saying like, this is going to happen. He's going to coup you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's a real tragedy, and um, I often find that um, in studying African decolonization, you will just be met with a series of tragedies and yeah. what could have been, and yeah, yeah. if only certain a certain individual didn't do this, and it's it's a real place for uh, I want to say not demoralization, but you can uh, you can end up uh, going down a pretty dark spiral. Um, just by I mean, it's pretty depressing. At, <laughs> I mean, it yeah, is. just by looking at all these potential <laughs> great revolutions that were strangled in their crib by either uh, people who were slighted or people who had lost out by the revolution, and then obviously the ever looming hand of uh, Western imperialism coming through to uh, invade or either uh, sponsor opposition groups in your country. Yeah, exactly, and. Um... And once again, speaking of, you know, uh, leaders who, once they get into the good graces of the West, can stay in power for fucking ages. Blaise Compaoré stayed in power from 1987 till 2014. Uh, won, like, four, four dodgy elections. Uh, and uh, finally, there was a student uprising in 2014, and, uh, and he was forced to flee. Interestingly, though, um, this year... I think it was April. It was announced that Campore was going to stand trial, actually, um, for the murder oh. of Sankara. Oh, yeah, is so that, that came out, uh, Yeah, so that came out this year, um, which is that he's uh, he's due to stand trial. So, uh, you know, some 30-odd years down the line, or even more, rather, um, you know, there might be a bit of uh, sort of a gesture at justice for what happened. But obviously, it's yeah. a bit too late for that. Yeah, because I mean that's the thing. I mean his involvement in in the coup, it's all still technically alleged, even though it's pretty much like everyone knows that he was involved. Right. But like, it, like you know, he never admitted to it. And um, there's just the, the the sort of a press conference that he's giving, like very shortly afterwards, where he's just saying, "Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> you know? I lost a friend today. It's a shame. It's a real shame." <laughs> yeah, no, it's a. Uh... The coup was quite weird, actually. Um, when I was doing the research for the show, um, I was reading a book by um, a guy called Ernest uh, Harsh, and he was right. actually quite a, a, a close associate of um, Thomas Sankara, and he wrote a, a biography of um, Sankara. And he was actually in Burkina Faso at the time of the coup. And right. he essentially describes that um, on the day of the coup, the airwaves are just sort of um, being filled up with information saying that Sankara is a traitor, that he's petty bourgeois, that he's fascist. Um, and he was saying that most of the people were like, this is, this is rubbish. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? And um, he says that it was um, at um, Campore's 
direction, essentially, that Sankara's image began to be vilified yeah. in um, Burkina Faso. Yeah, yeah. But, um, obviously, he had done so much for the country and was su- such a man of the people that it was quite difficult initially to get the people to go along with the idea that he had somehow betrayed the nation and needed to be deposed. In 2014, when these students kind of led this uprising against the government, a lot of those kids came out in Sankara t-shirts. Yeah, like, I was just, like, watching this interview with this this musician um, who was around at the time as well, and he was just talking about how, yeah, it was just, like, a whole generation had sort of stayed silent. Um almost, but then it would, they were finally allowed to become men at that point. You know, like they were all kids when um, Sankara had been killed. Um, and now they were finally, they were finally men. That's what he was saying. And um, well, Sankara, he, he occupies a position. I mean, he's often referred to as um, Africa's Che Guevara. Yeah. And yeah. he, he occupies that similar sort of mythical status. Yeah in um, African revolutionary history. So it's no surprise that even in 2014, long after his assassination, that his spirit and his image even is still sort of resonating with the youth and the um, sort of grassroots of um, Burkina Faso. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, and and I mean, in relation to the sort of wider question of Pan-Africanism as well, I mean, like when he was in... Um, the OAU in uh, 1987, he appealed to the rest of the African leaders and said, please join me in not paying the debt. Uh, because, I mean, by that point already, you know, like the question of Africa's debt was a huge, huge fucking problem. And um, and and he said openly, uh, if because if I'm the only... Co- I'm, I'm, I'm asking for self-preservation because if we're the only country that doesn't pay it. I'm not going to be back at the conference next year. And what do you know? He wasn't back at the conference yeah. next year. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like in 1987, the cumulative African debt to Western creditors was essentially yeah. something in the field of $200 billion. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, he goes to the OAU and he says, look, guys, let's just all together not pay it. What are they going to do? And that's the whole idea and Which a lot of these, that. a lot of these people had uh, like individually talked about that themselves. But uh, and and then even when he's talking, you know, like the, the the speech is there, and you know, like you can hear that, like you know, the 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 leaders are all being receptive, but like, but then in the end, no one backs him, uh, and he kind of has to stand on his own. Um, and that that kind of comes back to the sort of failings of the OAU that I was talking about. In that it sort of, while, you know, the intentions of it were good and they did manage to do some good things, in the end, its goal of Pan-African unity, I think, left a lot to be desired. And there's another story um, of uh, Sankara at the OAU, and this was uh, the year before in uh, 86. And yeah. he, uh, he goes to the OAU and he pledges 10 rifles to anti-apartheid militants and obviously everyone sort of laughs and he says well you know look at us we're one of the poorest countries in africa and if we can give 10 of our rifles to anti-apartheid militant fighters can't you guys pledge even more do you know what i mean yeah yeah so it's this sort of dedication to pan-africanism that sankara embodies and i think the oau as an institution 
uh, sort of lacks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, because that's the thing. I mean, especially when we look at um, the sort of the need for pan-Africanism in a, in a political context today um, and some of the biggest structural problems facing Africa today, like you were saying, you know, like in, in 1987, it was north of 200 billion. Now it's north of 400 billion, you know, Africa's uh, total debt to foreign lenders. A lot of that is to, you know, the IMF and the World Bank. A lot of that's to, uh, you know, bilateral lenders. So a, a big part of that is China, obviously. Uh, and then, yeah, there's, there's private lenders as well. But... Um, that's the thing. I mean, is you know, especially at a time like this, you know, in 2019, um, like 30 African countries, I think, spent more money on repaying debt than they could on public health care. And, you know, this is at a time of a, a global pandemic, you know, and, and you've got countries exactly. literally just paying back this debt, which like it's it's made up. <laughs> like, this is the thing. Exactly. It's just it's literally fucking made up, dude. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> this is what I like I, I, I you know I feel like the older I've gotten the harder it's become for me to like understand economics because like it's all just nonsense to me <laughs> like it is literally just all just um, yeah it's literally just numbers well, no, on the yeah, screen someone, someone goes to the central bank in uh, the Bank of England gets on their laptop types a few numbers and uh, suddenly That's we've it. been able to you know find six six trillion dollars to give to uh, Boris Johnson's mate you know what I mean? So, uh, to, yeah, I know. I'll to, tell you yeah. Through, you know. <laughs> this is it, you know? But, um, I mean, in terms of, like, the sort of wider um, lessons of Pan-Africanism and, and its legacy, I mean, what would you say they are today? And um, I think if Pan-Africanism has taught us anything, and if looking at the period of decolonization from the 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond demonstrates that now more than ever, Africa is not going to be able to be truly independent until it's united. And obviously, that is very much easier said than done. And a lot of the problems for this stem directly from the Berlin Conference, of course, when yeah. Europeans decided to carve up Africa, you know, irrespective of the different uh, tribal ethnic groups that live there. And it's this sort of, these sticking to these colonial borders that has often been the source of a lot of the domestic tension within Africa. Yeah. And I think it is a need for a supranational um, African Union that would definitely uh, mean that Africa would be able to be on more even terms with the West. Yeah. And if Pan-Africanism shows us anything, it's that African unity is the only solution to African exploitation by the West. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I'd also kind of go further than, from that to say that, like, if, like, the general outlook of Pan-Africanism, if I'm to understand it correctly, is is kind of recognising the shared struggle of African people, not just in the African continent as well, but it's also the diaspora. Um, and, uh, and, and, and understanding the sort of broader structural issues of both capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, which affect us, you know, like whether we're living on the on, on the frontiers or the or the metropole of the empire. So um, that's the thing, you know. I think having that that recognition, especially at a time like right now, like you were saying, you know, especially at a time of climate change and uh, you know global pandemic, and you know, um, at a time when you know, like the need for these kinds of global answers are, are and, and global solidarity, let's say 
is is more more necessary than ever. I think it's it's absolutely vital to you know understand that shared struggle. Um, you know, across all of these different borders and across all of these different demarcations or whatever. No, exactly. And that that sort of shared struggle, I think, is something, just to go back to Sankara again, is something that radicalizes Sankara when he is in the military uh, before uh, the revolution and he's fighting in the um, border war with Mali. And he essentially looks at this situation and says, look, we, us, Upper Volta and Mali, are some of the poorest countries in Africa. And we are fighting over borders, borders that we didn't draw up, that were drawn up by some Europe- Europeans sitting somewhere. And it is us, the Africans, that are fighting against each other to preserve these borders. What we should be doing is working cooperatively. And this is the whole idea of Pan-Africanism, is to work cooperatively to secure independence for the entire continent. And that's what Nkrumah says when he comes to power. He says, our independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the liberation of the entire African continent. And I think that's the essence of Pan-Africanism. Yeah, before we wrap up in that case, I think, yeah, like, um, you know, I was mentioning earlier this uh, th- this question, especially when we're talking about um, anti-colonial independence struggles, uh, this question of, uh, yeah, like a progressive nationalism, you know, comes up, which we've talked about before in the podcast, uh, you know, in our episode about football, you know, when I was talking about going to the Kanifa World Cup, the Confederation of Independent Football Associations of uh, stateless nations, basically. Um, and, um, you know, this is obviously something that's, that's come up a lot in the discourse of late, you know, especially with England getting to the Euros final again. Uh, and, um, yeah, like that, that, that's the thing. I mean, you know, when, when we look at something like, uh, independence movements, um, and when we look at something like, uh, Pan-Africanism, which is a, a type of nationalism, um, you know, but, you know, how does one sort of compute between that and the nationalism that people think of when they think of like the EDL, for example, right? And I mean, is it possible in that sense to embody something like a progressive uh, nationalism today? Uh, and, and, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you reckon that could be? So on the question of nationalism, I think a lot of uh, leftists, let's say, in living in places like the Imperial Court, um, they often see nationalism as anathema, nationalism as a dirty word. It's often associated with, you know, the EDL, right-wing, fascistic, chauvinistic nationalism. And I think we need to differentiate between that sort of nationalism and nationalism in the context of indigenous and colonised people. And in that case, this liberation nationalism is something that is a very, very potent tool for people under uh, colonial rule. And I think, like I said earlier with Nkrumah, he said, our independence is meaningless unless it's linked up with the total liberation of Africa. Nkrumah was a nationalist, but indigenous and anti-colonial nationalism is, goes hand in hand with internationalism. And right-wing nationalism is exactly the opposite. Nationalist, right-wing nationalism is chauvinistic. It is saying our country is the best and all other co- countries are subordinate. So just right off the bat, we need to separate the two from each other because a lot of people conflate the two and it really, really grinds my gears when I'm talking to people over here and I'm talking about, we talk about people like um, 
the Black Panthers who some some people say, you know, oh, they were black nationalists. That's the same thing as white nationalism. And I'm like, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> are they are they are they reverse racists now? Is exactly, that what's exactly. It's the, <laughs> it's the same thing as going around saying that they are reverse racists. And uh, another example, another example today is is that perfectly, you know, sort of demonstrates the differences between anti-colonial nationalism and right-wing chauvinistic nationalism is Palestine. So you can, we, we wave Palestinian flags, for example, to demonstrate our solidarity with the indigenous people of Palestine. Yeah. That in, in, in and of itself is a form of nationalism. But if, on the other hand, you wave an Israeli flag, that is you waving a symbol of a right-wing chauvinistic symbol because Israel and the state of Israel is predicated on the colonization of and the displacement of Palestinians. That is a very clear example demonstrating the differences between types of nationalism. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, um, I think that's that's obviously like a really, um, really clear and obvious example today. Um, but on, on the sort of counter argument to that, that I would say, at least in terms of some of the discourse I've seen around like this question of progressive nationalism, um, at least in the UK, is that like, and it's not a counter argument actually. It it actually you know it it it, um, it follows is that you know be- because England has at least not in anything remotely approaching modern history uh, been the colonized force. You know, so like England has always been the colonizer, even within the context of Britain, but then globally, definitely. Um, and and therefore the idea of a progressive english nationalism is something that i that i do find a little bit odd let's just say uh, you know uh, well, just because uh, um <laughs> just because uh, and that's that's not to say that you know those images can't be appropriated and can't be reclaimed for you know different purposes and in the last episode as well for example when we were talking with with uh, trevor about the about the euros and he was talking about how like it was sometime up until the 90s it was the union jack that was being used um to uh you know in 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 uh Even worse, games. Yeah, in England games. And then at some point they, they changed it to the St. George's flag. Uh, and that became like seen as like quite a progressive move because the St. George's flag at that point hadn't, you know, hadn't still been associated with like the EDL and stuff. Like the BNP logo is like the Union Jack. I mean, obviously, you know, these, these symbols can and do change their meaning over time. But um, I just think that the idea of like an English nationalism that, that is progressive, I mean, I think at best it can be something sort of indifferent different but like which is kind of like what we see like for the majority of people when they're when they're you know supporting england and uh you know out there you know um just taking a lot of gack and like getting really drunk and like yeah fair fair play you know like uh, good on you but like to think that this like has the potential to be any sort of meaningful like i mean even in terms of like 
if you look at like the, the the kinds of people that are actually able to attend football matches as well, you know, like it's 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 not a cheap hobby, <laughs> you know. So it's not even like you're tapping into this like huge uh, working class uh, of, of people, you know, who can unify over their material conditions uh, over the game of football, <laughs> you know. Like, I mean, so the, I like <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical. Like, let's just say this. This is not me saying. Look. Don't go to the pub and get pissed and like seeing free lions or Vindaloo or whatever. Yeah. That's perfectly fine. Like I, I, you know what? I will happily like you know do that. Enjoy the Euros, support the boys. But at the same time, to then turn around and say that we can use this as a force for progressivism in this country. I mean, we can't even get class consciousness in this country. Do you know what I mean? And that we're trying to use the we're trying to use these symbols as a sort of progressive image like you said before england and britain as an extension has never essentially been the oppressed been the oppressed and it has always yeah. been the oppressor and it's something yeah. that i find i say western leftists when i say western what i really mean is white <laughs> white leftists it's okay uh, you can say it this is a safe space <laughs> and um but if you think if you think I'm at and you here like I'm not, I'm just trying to say <laughs> that some some Western or white leftists that I've spoken to see nationalism on one hand when indigenous people and colonized people do it as some sort of anathema. You're adjacent to uh, adjacent to chauvinism, but at the same time wanting to seize the potential of a progressive patriotism in this country it just doesn't add up it doesn't add up yeah. and i think if anything a sort of progressive a progressive patriotism is a trap in this country um and yeah. it's it's i don't think it's a worthy pursuit of our time and one of the main reasons for this is because even people will acknowledge this leftists will acknowledge this in this country well i hope they will which is that living in the imperial core here means that our all of the comforts that we enjoy are essentially built off of the back of the exploitation of people in the global south Precisely. right so to then use that to sort of build a progressive patriotism it doesn't compute how can yeah. we at the same time try and be progressive with the symbol of imperialism worldwide it, it it doesn't add up i think it's a waste of time personally i look if you want to go for it knock yourself out but it's not for me i mean th this is why i also say that i think one of the reasons why especially the british left has is like can be quite bad on foreign policy and on like uh, empire in general is because the sort of heyday of british leftism at least in this country in terms of government power is the 1945 government which is at least government, which like you oh, know committed God. horrendous, like which committed horrendous, horrendous you know imperial crimes around the world, you know. So like, um, so and and I think that like you know the gains of that time, the NHS and the the welfare state that was built at that time, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not. This is not to dismiss that at all, but it is important to recognize that it's built off of that wealth, regardless. You know, like I mean, Britain, yeah, was was pretty demolished after the uh, after the Second World War, but like it was still able to build a fucking national health service and a welfare state. 
off its imperial wealth you know and well, like exactly and and, <laughs> and like and and and, and 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 like until people can like you know come to terms with that this is why i think it's also you know like it's always important to look at the sort of duality of these dynamics as well like in, like look let's look at somewhere like india you know where yeah like nationalism and the independence movement was like was yeah like generally a hugely progressive force in terms of you know like getting the british out and um you know the 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 original uh, the the founding of india was as a was as a secular um you know country with with a fairly kind of socialist outlook in a lot of ways you know with these kind of big state infrastructure projects and things like that and at the same time you know like that symbol of na- of 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 nationalism like the indian flag uh, the Indian state is itself also a colonial power in Kashmir, for example. It's a colonial power, and it's you know, uh, however, like ten million tribal people that live in that live in India. I mean, in, like it's in, the Indian state has always treated them horrendously, and so it's a, important to kind of look at that that dynamic as well. And, and like now, you know, with a with a um, with a leader like Modi as well, obviously, you know, who is just a straight up fucking fascist. You know, he's very much going to employ those symbols, uh, which at one point were symbols of, um, you know, some sort of a progressive nationalism, which have now become uh, a symbol for a very regressive and very reactionary and fascist nationalism. You know, so right, exactly. I think it's it's it's, it's like I, yeah, like like that that that's the thing. I mean, I think like. You're you're hundred percent right that like I think a, a lot of people don't recognize that side of things, but yeah, I think it's just always important to kind of like know how these things can also change and 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 uh, evolve over time as well. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was um, about to actually get yeah. at. And when I you know demarcate the differences between uh, right wing chauvinistic uh, nationalism and um, left wing anti colonial nationalism, that is not me saying. Left-wing anti-colonial nationalism is good and right-wing yeah. uh, fascist uh, nationalism is bad. We know that right-wing fascism is bad, but Franz Fanon himself says that we, you have to be vigilant when you're um, part of an anti-colonial nationalist movement. Yeah. Because even then, you can still, you're still prone to the sort of chauvinistic tendencies of someone like Modi or someone exactly. like, uh, someone like a fascist like Bolsonaro, for example. Yeah. So even then, among, uh, among a movement that should generally be progressive, you are still vulnerable to that sort of temptation of the dark side, as it were, um, of uh, right-wing chauvinism. So it's just something that we need to be aware to. And in a country like England, um, I just think it's a waste of time, personally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no matter how many Guardian think pieces go up about how Keir Starmer needs to flag the flag a little bit harder yeah. this time. The next relaunch, yeah. the flag is going to be like six centimeters bigger. That's, that's the new <laughs> rebrand of Labour. But no, this has genuinely been a lot of fun and uh, yeah, educational for me as well, doing the research and during the recording and uh yeah like i said as well any any plugs that you want to replug or anything else that you want to shout out before we wrap up okay mad cool um yeah so first of all just want to plug uh young historians project you can find us younghistoriansproject.org if you are uh, someone between 16 25 and you're interested in history particularly black british history um send us an email um you can find it all on the site um our project is launching literally uh tomorrow so um, amazing i have i'll have links on my twitter at uh perius pb 
or you can just search me up, um, Pez, on Twitter. Um, I'll have links up for so you can buy tickets for that. And also, um, definitely, 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 if you're interested in um, Pan-African history, check out um, Hakeem Adi, uh, Pan-Africanism, a history. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I'm going to uh, plug the, uh, the the book um, and all the Young Historian Project stuff as well, because you mentioned tomorrow, so it'll actually be out by the time the episode comes out. So yeah, we'll oh, be able nice, to plug nice. everything everything with the with the podcast. Uh, but yeah, like I said once again, um, thanks so much. It's been it's been a lot a uh, lot of fun. Uh, obviously, quite depressing some of this stuff, but also really enlightening and and just and also quite inspirational. I think like you just it's it's impossible to to read about someone like Sankara and not be inspired like genuinely. <laughs> Yeah, listen, um, listen. But yeah, I mean, these are when we when we look at Africa. These are people that are some of the poorest, most exploited, and most downtrodden people in the world. And even then, they are able to, through the their collective will, cast off yeah. you know some of the most powerful empires in the world. And I think just that alone is a great sort of source for inspiration. And it sort of just demonstrates wherever the contradictions of uh, capitalist exploitation are, there is then the propensity for people to band together and resist those. So if you want to take anything out of the story of Africa, is that as long (laughs) as that exploitation is there, people will resist. Resistance is always possible. That's it. Yeah. And on that note as well, (laughs) as as always, I'm uh, Arjan. Uh, You can find me at Arjanistan on Twitter. Find the podcast at Leftover Pod. Um, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Leftover Pod as well. A uh, huge shout out to everyone that's supporting us as always. Uh, and a massive thanks if you're able to help as well. Every little, every, every little helps. Uh, every, every new uh, supporter really know, does make a big difference. So if you are, um, if you do like what we do uh, and have considered supporting, uh, um, yeah, please do sign up. Uh, other than that as well, huge shout out to Sarah for the production, to Cardio for the music, to all of you for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Cheers. Dia no pojuru kacha Dia dunga kolon kacha Adama de unka kuma yele man kacha dunga nanga sabali Ni madokora ite kola bada dunga na Ni madokora ite akli soro fese Yere l'on passe ni bedouyana Yere boya basse ni bedouyana Nga djano si tamanga de soye 